Revelation chapter 2. Thank you, Brother Dwayne, for that song that I haven't heard in a while. Don't you love those old courses that you learned growing up? The first thought memory I had when I heard Brother Dwayne practicing that song this morning was Teen Camp, 1997. I was 17 years old. I'd been saved just a few months before, about seven days before my 17th birthday. And I'm at Ponderosa Bible Camp on top of Lookout Mountain. How many of you are thankful for Lookout Mountain? Mentone, Alabama. Beautiful area, DeSoto State Falls Park. Many of you have traveled in that area. And I was up on top of that mountain June 20th, 1997. And I remember singing that song, worshiping the Lord as, as our camp uh, gathered for the service that night. And then being challenged in giving my heart to Christ. I've been saved but really um, surrendering to the Lord and following him with my life. And they handed out a card where you could basically sign your name to the line saying, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed, the, die, the, the unashamed, the die is cast. I've crossed the line. I'm following Jesus with my life. And I'll never forget that day, June 20th, 1997, and the memory that I have of singing that song. Brother Dwayne, thank you for reminding me of that important day in my life and how it never left me the same. Well, today I want to preach a message to you entitled Falling Forward, Falling Forward, and we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 2. But before we get there, let me show you a few pictures from our week. And I just thought of this, but we, because of our summer schedule and how it works, we're not going to probably get a chance for a testimony service so you know what? We're doing a testimony service today at our Singspiration. So teenagers, get ready. Uh, sponsors, get ready to share a short testimony if you're able to stay. Hope you are. And we'll have testimonies uh, sprinkled throughout our song, our Singspiration, right after our lunch today here on the grounds. And so I hope you'll be able to stay for that. But look at some of these photos. This is our photo of our teen campers. We took 13 teen campers and six junior campers. And of course, there at the wilds, they, they're able to do everything on one piece of property. It is incredibly huge, but they're able to keep track of everyone. And so this was uh, our photo of all of our teen campers who went. And this is us getting there the first day, unloading everything. And some of the, uh, our teenagers getting connected up with their counselors, and we're getting photos of all them. And uh, just, just had a great time getting to meet the counselors, getting them sent off, of course, there at the wilds this week, sun was uh, common, but also rain was abundant. And so uh, there's Joey and Luke and Caleb all soaking wet, getting unloaded. And uh, there's Hannah and her counselor and just some of the other photos, Kalel and a young man named Daniel who used to come to this church, Daniel Wigington. Many of you know the Wiggingtons, Daniel and Lauren. We picked them up at Six Flags and took them on with us and had a good time. The water, the, the lake is beautiful there. How many fishermen we got? Yep, you'd love that lake. And just a beautiful, beautiful area. There's a waterfall on one of the hikes there on the property. They have some of the most incredible zip lines you'll ever see. And the problem is the zip line just goes too fast. You can't stop in the middle of the zip line and look around you. You're, you're probably, what, 200 feet off the gorge? So if you fall from that zip line, it's over. But don't worry, you know, they're very secure. But there's a photo of a waterfall, just, just beautiful property. Corey, Charlotte, and I had a chance to get away and look at some of the other waterfalls there in Brevard. Um, just a beautiful area, uh, worshiping in, in God's creation. There's Luke coming from the store. These kids know how to spend money. Tell you what, I, I learned a lot. I already knew my son, Luke. Luke knows how to spend money faster than he gets it. In fact, he's got plans. Yeah, yeah, he's, I don't, I don't know if you can see Luke over here, but he's like, yeah, uh-huh. He's the spender of the three. But anyway, he was spending his money quick. Joey, Joey really wanted to share his ice cream with Mr. Do Dozier. Can't you tell in that photo? <laughs> Joey's like, no way. Mr. Dozier was trying to get a bite of his cotton candy ice cream there. Uh, Corey, we as sponsors, we did a lot, but we also got a lot of rest. There's Corey uh, counting, some, counting some daisies. So uh, anyway, we had a good time. And of course, Pastor Shetler, my, my campus pastor at Pensacola Christian College years ago, preached to the young people. There were, there were 1,235 campers on site this week. The largest week in the 50-year history of the wilds happened this week, and we had a chance to be a part of it. And God's people said, amen. I want you to see this, this group of people, and, and this doesn't even give you the immensity of the size of the room. It, it's, it's a gymnasium, but they know how to pack them in there. 
And on the final night when Pastor Shetler preached on surrender, um, almost every camper left saying they want to surrender. Now, some stayed because they've already surrendered their lives. And they've said, you know, Lord, I'm following you wherever you, you call me. I, I'm, I'm surrendered. And so some stayed. Uh, some stay because of that. Some stay because they're still wrestling with that. But most of the campers uh, had never really been challenged with that decision to, to follow Christ and to make that decision to surrender. And so I, I wish you could have seen almost every one of those chairs was empty at the end of that service. I, I'll probably never forget seeing that and saying, you know, there's hope for America. <laughs> there's hope for America and there's hope in the gospel. And so I'm just thankful for Pastor Shetler's heart. He has the heart to want to exhort and to encourage our teenagers. Uh, at times he would get direct, but you knew he loved you, and you knew that he was for you. And so I'm thankful for him. A lot of memories, of course, come flooding back from college. There's another picture of the lake. It's, it's, it's as if I really liked that, that shot. So just a beautiful time. There's us having lunch on Thursday with our junior high campers and catching up with them on their week, hearing some of their testimonies. Hannah was the only junior girl camper, but it looks like she didn't skip a beat. So she loved that, right, Hannah? She's like, I didn't need any other junior girls around. I was good to go. And so, she, of course, she was in a, a, a cabin with some other girls, but not from our church. But anyway, uh, they all had a great time, our junior campers did. And so, yeah, and then, of course, again, we as sponsors, we also slaved away floating down the tube on the water. You're welcome, Beth. You know, I had to, had to I, that, that's the only picture I got. I got some video, too. But anyway, there's Jacob Dozier in the giant swing. Jacob, you have a good time on the giant swing? I did not do the giant swing again. I've done it before. It's kind of like one of those things, adults, when you got high blood pressure, you only do those kinds of things once, and then you learn your lesson. But anyway, um, had a great time. There's Brother Jim preaching to us as sponsors. So we packed up, and unfortunately, <laughs> we didn't get home with everything. Uh, Luke, stand up for just a second. Luke's, Luke's going to be the source of a lot of sermon illustrations today. Luke, uh, the poor... I don't know if he's poor, but the poor thing left every single piece of clothing in his suitcase at camp, except for the clothes on his back. So needless to say, we're going to have to get the wilds to ship dirty camp clothes. Please pray for the postal delivery man and every person that touches that package. They're going to probably stop it at the border or stop it at the major federal headquarters thinking it's some kind of you know, nerve agent. But anyway, uh, the, uh, Luke left every piece of clothing. Caleb, uh, Tyrone left his sleeping bag. So we're going to be on the horn in the morning to the office at the Wiles to get clothing for Luke and Caleb's sleeping bag. But I think we got everything else. And the most important thing is we brought all the kids home. All right. So that's the most important thing. Brought them home and we're glad that we were able to make it back home safe and sound. Thank you, parents, for letting us take your children, for entrusting us with your most valuable possession on this earth, your precious children and their souls. And we hope that they had a wonderful time and look forward to going again next year. If you missed this year, jump on board. We'll be going back again, Lord willing, next year. And we've got other camping opportunities as well. So hope that you'll be in prayer for all those things. Had a great time. And we, of course, we could not finish without going by Chick-fil-A one more time on our way home. And so, oh man, I had more photos. I didn't realize I had all these. Um, oh, the depths, both of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Um, my prayer is that God would continue to do the work in and through his spirit, through his word, and that we would continue to grow in grace together as a church family. Well, if you have your Bibles there in Revelation chapter number two, we're going to be in, uh, studying this topic today, falling forward. And um, I don't really know how this sermon's going to go. Uh, I've studied it this week, but I really want to just park in on the first point. So if you do take notes, let me run through the outline real quick so that you've got that information. I would hate for someone who hate, how many of you hate to have an empty blank on your handout? All right, you want to make sure every blank is filled. All right, let me give you those. And then I'm going to go back and really, for the majority of the message, park on the first point, because I really believe that's what we need to hear today as it's really tied to this passage of Scripture here in Revelation chapter 2. So let's read the passage of Scripture then I'll go through the message very quickly, giving to you the blanks and, and, and some of the truths, just touching the highlights, and then we're going to come back and part for a little bit on point one. Revelation 2, verse 1. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, And to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. 
I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how, thy, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. If you were to read the first couple of verses of this uh, passage of Scripture that we're studying today, you'd say that the church of Ephesus was a model church. It was a church that was full of good works. It was a church that was, um, had correct doctrine. They, had, um, they, they were able to spot false teachers and to deal with those, those issues correctly. They were able to serve. They were able to labor. They were able to um, uh, continue serving, serving one another and others. Uh, you also get the idea that they also were bearing under persecution, just some of the language there. And so it seems like everything is going right for this church. It seems to be the model church from the externals. But as you read ahead already, and many of you are familiar with this passage, Jesus then says this, You look good on the outside, Ephesus. You got the right works. You have the right labor. You're patient. But nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. And what's the issue? What's what, what is Jesus concerned about? He says, you've left your first love. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's the lover of this church. He's the lover of their souls. He's the one who loved them so much that he would be willing to be alienated from his father so that he could become the righteousness of God for them. He loved them, and they had left their first love. How do you think that that hit Ephesus? I think sometimes we get confused over different words between the word conviction and the word grief. I think when Ephesus heard this, they were grieved because these were believers. And, and as believers, when we sin, it's a little bit different than when an unbeliever sins because when a believer sins, it's a, it's a grieving of a relationship. It's not just the violation of a law. In the, when you're an unbeliever, the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, showing you that you're a sinner under the law. But but when you're grieved in the Spirit, it's because you're in a love relationship. You see, love trumps law. Love goes further than law. And so because of that, I think there was a deep grief, I hope, for the church of Ephesus when they heard those words. You have all the externals right, but, but you've left your first love. You're going through the motions of a relationship, but, there's, but where's the spark? Where's the genuineness? Where's the authenticity? Where's the passion for God? Where's that panting after the water brook? So my soul pants after you, O God. And so what is Jesus' solution for that? Get really sorry and crawl on broken glass and try to perform works of penance to try to earn back his love? Is that the answer? No. Look at verse 5. He says, what's the solution to this issue? Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Now, they hadn't fallen out of a relationship. They had fallen inside of a relationship. And so the issue is not get saved again. The issue is remember and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick. And that's been a source of confusion over the years. What is he saying? He's not saying, I don't believe that they can lose their salvation, but what they would lose is they would lose their influence as a church. And isn't that sad? That the very thing that God calls us to be, a light, a candle, a light to the world, we can lose that influence when we are just going through the motions of outward, external activity, but there's no real, genuine relationship. There's no love. And so the church of Ephesus had fallen. They had failed. They, they had failed. I mean, they thought they were doing it right, but they had failed. And God, Jesus here, calls them to remember, simply remember and repent. Father, bless this time as we study your word and as we really park upon this first truth that we're going to be looking at, understanding holiness and understanding the difference between self-righteous external activity and inward transformational Christ-likeness. Um, Father, thank you for this special Sunday, more of just a sitting back, casual, having a good time, and, and studying your word together as a church family. I pray that you would speak to our hearts and that you would just speak through me, Lord. There's no greater joy for me than to see your truth 
come through my life and into others' lives and to see it help them. And so, Father, I pray you'd help me today to know where to park and to know where to move on. And we'll be careful to praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. And I forgot to tell some of y'all to move, but it's okay. Just stay where you're at. We don't want uh, to get you out of your seat now and get you moving. But anyway, after receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior, we often set out to become better for God. I think that's a genuine desire out of our new nature. When we get saved, there's a new desire there. You want to live for God. And so um, we want to do better things with our lives for God. And so our motivations are innocent and right, but sometimes if we're not careful, our theology is at risk of being misguided and misdirected. Um, What do I mean? A few weeks ago, we studied that Jesus sets us free immediately from the penalty of sin, and we call that regeneration. We also studied a couple weeks ago that he sets us free from the power of sin gradually, and we call that daily renewing our mind to the truth of the gospel. And then thirdly, we, we, we saw that eventually he delivers us from the presence of sin, and we call that the redemption of our, of our body. And so like Paul in Romans 7, we also studied him a couple of weeks ago, like Paul in Romans 7, we set off in our Christian journey seeking to try harder to overcome sin and the sin issues that we're still facing. But it seems like that the more we try, the more we focus on our sin, the more we struggle, and we're not focusing on Jesus. And so the more we focus on the struggle, the harder it becomes. This is why God's game plan, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is not just for us to focus on the struggle, but ultimately on Jesus. Don't misunderstand, in the last few weeks that I've been preaching on this struggle and this wrestling in the Christian life, it's not so that we can focus more on the struggle. It's so that we can look past the struggle to the solution to the person of victory. And that's exactly where Paul ends in his uh, chapter there in Romans 7. He ends with the person, the hope of victory. And so this is why God's game plan is not for us to focus on the process of struggling, but on the person of Jesus. The Christian life is cyclical, though. It happens in cycles, and it happens in seasons. And so this means that we're going to go through a process of spiritual growth in our lives. And the Bible uses many metaphors to help us better understand our Christian life. It uses the metaphor of a building and how you've got a foundation, and then you've got the side supports, and you've got the roof. And of course, the chief cornerstone, the foundation, is Jesus Christ. And so Paul uses the metaphor of a building. He also uses the metaphor of planting. And, and, and we've talked about that metaphor before and how, uh, and how descriptive it is of the Christian life and how we're all growing in this process of understanding who God has made us to be. And then also Paul uses the metaphor of running. And he talks about that one often in his epistle to the, uh, to the church of Corinth. He talks about how he's running a race. And also in Philippians chapter 3, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I uh, do, put, putting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul uses this, 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 uh, this metaphor of running. And in all of these uh, metaphors, building, planting, running, all of them involve a process. There's a process in building. There's a process in planting and seeing it grow. And there's a process in running. Believe me, you don't run a marathon in one second. That doesn't happen. You run a marathon every step, every mile. Some it takes two and a half, three hours. And those are what we call superhuman people who can run it that fast. Then you got some folks who just survive and get it done in maybe seven or eight hours. Who, who's, who's with me there, right? And some of you are like, running a marathon? Who in their right mind would do that? The marathon was named after the first guy who ran that far and then died at the end. I don't know if you know that. But a marathon was named after Marathon Greece where a soldier was running 26, 26.2 miles to tell the uh, people that they were being attacked in, in, in the state of the war, and he killed over at the end. So how many of you are ready to run a marathon? Yeah, no, I didn't think so. So anyway, Paul likens this idea of running, and he's talking about not just a sprint, but this enduring uh, type race, a marathon, if you will. So at the core, this process involves a continual resetting of our focus upon Christ. If we fail to understand these processes, what happens is is we run the risk of becoming weary and fainting in our minds due to misunderstood and misplaced expectations. So in our message today, we're going to look at how the process of growth actually helps us to glorify God. So here's the blanks. I'm going to give you the blanks just real quick, and we're going to come back and really park on understanding this idea between self-righteous holiness and genuine Christ-like holiness out of a heart that's been captivated by love. So, number one, understanding holiness. Write that down in the first blank. Understanding holiness. 
And then two, two blanks underneath there, self-righteousness and Christ-likeness. Oh, and I've got blank, or I've got screens to help there. So understanding holiness and then self-righteousness. We're going to look at these. We're going to really dig into these and Christ-likeness. So we're going to come back to that and really park there here in a moment. So I think what God wants us to understand from his word is we have to understand holiness, and that's what we're going to be focusing today. But let me go ahead and mention the second two thoughts as well. And if you really want to learn more about this, read chapter 11 of the book that we've been studying this summer. Um, I hope that's been a blessing to you. And if you've not yet read some of this, this would be a great chapter to read and to study deeper. So number two, I think God wants us to understand what is it when we are measuring our maturity um, measuring maturity, God talks a lot about growing in grace and spiritual maturity and, and growth in the Christian life. And, and part of understanding maturity is quantifying what is successful spiritual maturity. Um, is successful spiritual maturity more works? And yes and no. Because if we were to look at the church of Ephesus, they looked like a spiritually mature church, Right? I mean, they had all the works. They ticked all the boxes on what a good church should look like from the outside looking in. But Jesus said, you're missing the most important element here. And I'll liken this later, later in the message as well, but this could be similar even to a marriage. Maybe you're sitting there and you have what seems to be the picture-perfect marriage. Your, your, your marriage ticks all the boxes. But are you missing the most important element? The love that should be there. And so quantifying success. And so if, if, if we're still growing in our love for Jesus 15, 20 years later after we've been saved, then that's, that's really the way you quantify success is are we growing in our love for him? And from that love, are we living a life that is pleasing to him? So faithfulness is really what you could define success as. Faithfulness and continuing to love Christ, continuing to grow in your love and your appreciation, your adoration, and your consecration to him. Not giving up, but pressing on is success. And so Paul talks about being faithful and, and pressing forward because of love, because of an inward motivation to see and to um, be with Christ. And so rather than trying to measure our spiritual success by externals, God calls us to focus on the health of our heart and relationship with him. Um, and this is why God likens spiritual growth to fruit, because fruit, uh, yes, there is fake fruit and there's phony fruit, but genuine fruit takes time and genuine fruit is sweet and it's life-giving and it multiplies itself. And so this idea of quantifying success is found in the idea of faithfulness and our love and devotion to Christ. So measuring maturity, quantifying success. And, and, and I'm going to remind you of something I said last week or the week before, and it's this. God is more interested in what he's doing in me than what I'm doing for him. Now, it's not that we're not doing things for God. But the most important thing in our spiritual walk is what is God doing in me that stirs me to do things for him. And so this, this week, the teens heard a lot about doing things for God, which is good, young people. Because we want to know what are those things that we should be doing for him. But question again... Was, was the church of Ephesus doing the right things for God? Yes, they were doing the right things for God. But what was missing? The love, the heart, the motivation, the passion, the spark, what, what, whatever you want to use as an illustration or, or, or as a metaphor there. So if you get the in right, then the four will take care of itself. Anything I ever do for him should always be an overflow of what he is first doing in me. And we looked at that last week in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Because it says in verse 12, work out your salvation. And so many people quote that verse, but they forget to quote verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you. And so when you, get, and so when you understand that God's working in you, the works start to bubble over. The works start to sprout from the branches. And so we work out what he's working in. This is the process of the Christian life. This is how we mature. And so quantifying success, and then number two, under measuring maturity, dealing with distractions. Dealing with distractions. There's two key distractions that occur in our Christian life. One is idolatry. One is idolatry, where lesser loves steal our attention and affection for what should be our greatest love. And so the church of Ephesus clearly had fallen into lesser loves, because we're all born, created by God to love something or someone. 
And of course, we know that Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they be, and they started to love themselves more than, more than God. And, and every sin is, is really at its root an issue of love, who we love more, and, and do we love God. And that's why God says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first commandment. And Romans 3 says, none of us are lovers of God in our sinful fallen nature. We've all turned away from following God, from loving him. And so idolatry is one of the big distractions in our, in our world today. And I'm so excited for some of our young people. Uh, I hope I'm not going to embarrass them too much, and I'm sure he'll share this testimony later. But Joey made a big decision in his life this week about his video games. He loves video games, right, Joey? He loves to play video games. But he made a big decision in his life this week that he's going to love God's Word more. And that was such an encouragement to his daddy to hear that he made that decision that he's going to spend more time in God's Word because he loves God and he wants to grow in his love for God. And, and, he, and he realizes that he's been loving his video games. How many of you can say, you know, I've been loving something else in my life more than God? You know, we all struggle with this. And this is what Paul is alluding to. And this is what we've been studying, this idea of, of, of facing these distractions. And so idolatry, things that steal our attention and affection from God. And then the second distraction is defection. So we, we struggle enough to where we get to the point where we get distracted and we just give up. We, we just quit the race. We just say, well, this is going to be how it's always going to be, and we just defect. And so we have to deal with those distractions. And then finally, uh, in your blanks, and I'm flying through this, you need to read this. These are some great truths that are shared. But then finally, um, falling forward, failing forward failing forward. And we just read this passage where the church of Ephesus clearly had failed in their relationship with the Lord. And so what was God's remedy for the church of Ephesus? And this is what we'll allude back to at the end of the message today. But what was God's remedy for Ephesus? Number one, remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. Um, how do we deal with failure? How do we deal with failure? When, when the Christians here at Ephesus failed, Jesus simply said, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent. I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't say, you know, go through this long list to prove my love for you. He simply said, remember and repent. Change your mind about all these things that you think you're doing for me and start focusing deeper on what I'm doing in you and how much I love you. You have left your first love. And so remember where you came from. Remember that first love. Remember the love that you once had for Jesus. Remember the love that called you to Jesus. Remember when it was about a relationship and not a religion. Do you see what Ephesus had done? They had allowed all the things that they were doing for God to become the main focus. And they had moved from a relationship, love, with Jesus to now a religion for Jesus. And Jesus rebuked them. And he rebukes the church today, not only here in Decatur, but around the world when that's our focus. So remember where you came from. Number two, remember that God ordained this whole process of spiritual renewal and growth. Listen, I wish that I could be perfectly spiritually mature like that. My boys are always in a hurry to grow up. You know, dad, when are we going to do? I mean, they're always in a hurry to get older faster. How many of you are like, man, I wish I could get younger faster. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a certain age you get to, you're like, okay, please slow down. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to get older any quicker. But it's like when you're a kid, when you're still a child, a babe, in, in, so to speak, in the parallel in Christ, you want to grow fast. But yet God has ordained this process of daily dependence and renewal upon his truth in our life. And so God, uh, God uh, dealt with our old nature at the moment of our conversion and new birth. And yet there's this ongoing process of renewal where we daily depend upon this same grace through faith. And so will we fail at times, just like Ephesus did? Yes, we will. But the faith that we express when we repent and get back up and fight forward is the faith that brings God glory, and it's the same faith that saved us. It's, it's always looking back to the cross. It's always looking to the cross. The cross that saves you is the cross that daily renews your mind. That's why I love when we worship here at Fairview and sing these songs that are focused on the gospel because I need that weekly in my life. And so remember that God has ordained this process and that through the years you see, you, you start to look back and you're like, wow, the Spirit is maturing me. I am growing in my relationship with the Lord. And thirdly, remember that there is no condemnation. 
no condemnation. Jesus rebuked the church, but notice this. He wanted a relationship with them. He didn't say, you're beyond hope. He didn't say, I'm done with you. He said, remember and repent. And so remember that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Every single failure, every, here's good news for today. Every single sin has already been dealt with in the finished work of the cross. Amen? Amen. That's good news. And it's good news every day that we re rehearse that and proclaim it. And so it's done because of the once for all shed blood of Jesus. There is no condemnation. Jesus paid it all. The cross was completely sufficient. It was totally sufficient. It's so hard to believe because we still live in the, the not yet. We live with the daily process and we're like, how can it be finished? It is. We just have to believe it by faith and walk into the promised land. Believe it. The enemy likes to masquerade himself and make us think that it's the spirit that's condemning us. No, the accuser accuses us, but the spirit of God always points us back to Jesus and to relationship with him. There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ. And then remember that this process serves a purpose. This process serves a purpose. To be saved is to be completely engulfed in grace and unconditional love and completely dependent upon God's Spirit for the rest of your life. And so remember that this process serves a purpose to bring us to maturity, to bring us into a loving relationship with Christ. But let's go back to that first point for just a moment. Um, understanding holiness. This is where I want to part for just a few more minutes. Don't want to keep you long. I know we've got food to eat. But I hope that um, this will be a blessing to you. Understanding holiness. We know that part of Christian growth is growing in holiness. And let's look at a few verses besides Revelation 2 that teach that. Um, they should be printed there in your handout. But if you want to look them up in God's Word, you can. 1 Peter 1, verses 1, or verse uh, 14 through 16. It says this, and these verses aren't on the screen, but you can read them. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. We know that the Christian life and the growth in the Christian life is growing in holiness based on those verses. As obedient children who desire to grow. Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That word conversation means daily living. So we know that part of growing in the Christian life is growing in holiness. Now, when we think of holiness... What do we immediately think of? The first thing we think of is, oh, holiness, the absence of sin. And that is part of the definition of holiness. But that is not all of the definition of holiness, as we're going to see today, as we really see from Revelation chapter 2. Holiness, question, has God always been holy? Yeah. Was there ever a time, though, when there wasn't sin? See, if you define holiness as just the absence of sin or separate from sin, then there was a time when there was no sin. So there could be a time when you could say that God was, yeah, he was still holy, but that holiness was somewhat diminished. And we know that with God, nothing is diminished. <laughs> it's 100, you know, infinite. And so holiness is certainly the absence of sin. But I think you see here in Revelation 2, along with many other passages of Scripture, that holiness has the idea of so much more. And so that's what we want to talk about because the danger in justifying holiness as the absence of sin is we can quickly slide into self-righteous living and think that because the outside looks good, because we're not sinning, therefore we must be growing and we must be more holy. Was Ephesus growing and maturing in their walk with Christ? At the core, they weren't. Did they look like they were on the outside? They sure did, but they were missing the most important aspect of holiness. Holy, holy love, which again takes us so much farther. So what's not always clear in the Christian life is, is how is holiness seen and evidenced in the Christian life? 
So two, two, two thoughts here. Self-righteousness, and I'm going to go back here in my slides. There we go. Self-righteousness. It's common, as I mentioned, for new believers to, in their early spiritual growth, to misunderstand what spiritual health looks like. Especially if they're not being discipled properly in a church. And, and by the way, our mission statement here at Fairview is to make more and better disciples of Jesus through the power of his saving and transforming grace. Our prayer is that as people are saved by the gospel, they are shaped by the gospel, and that we as a church are engaged in that mission. And so, um, sadly though, so many times when a believer gets saved, they're not discipled properly in a local church. And what happens if we're not careful, and even in churches where we are discipling, what happens if we're not careful is, is we easily turn to rules and standards as the measuring stick for our spiritual health. And so our journey can devolve into a strict adherence to a code. Now let me ask you a question. When you think about your Christian life as a parallel, as an illustration, marriage. How many of you are married in here? Raise your hand. How many of you think you're married? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you want to be married? Raise your hand. Okay, good, good. Good to see some honest, amens. We need to pray for, the, pray for them as well. Um, sorry, I'm getting off track here. But, but anyway, the marriage, okay? Not, not picking on our singles. We're so thankful for them. And guys, it's okay if you're single. God's going to bring that right one along if that's his will for you. And if not, what a wonderful life that you'll be able to live as a single person serving God and being able to be fully focused there. But anyway, um, but, but in marriage, let me ask you, is marriage all about a strict adherence to a code? Is that it? I mean, I mean is, it, is it all about rules and regulations? If it is, I'm going to pray for your marriage very, very seriously today. Because that marriage is on life support, if that's what it's all about. I mean, if a marriage is just about a code, if it's just about rules and, and, and laws, well then, you're missing the main thing. Love. Now, if you have love, are there, are there rules and boundaries? Sure. So that's the difference here. Sure, sure, are standards helpful? Yes, they are. They can offer safe boundary lines for living, but we may, must ever be aware of their purpose and, and meaning. Let me ask you this question. Were the Pharisees holy? Were the Pharisees holy? Were they holy? Um, God says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So in the Old Testament, God commanded the people, worship him in the beauty of holiness. But yet Peter rebukes the Pharisees who seem to be holy. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, this people draw nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Empty, worthless, in vain do they worship me. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees were not holy by God's standards. They looked holy. They acted holy, but they murdered the king of love on the cross. And so we know that it's more than this, but the Pharisees were focused on this self-righteousness. And, and the danger is, is those who worked the hardest, think about this, the hypocrites were the ones who were the hardest workers. They were the most disciplined in their behavior. They kept the rules. They were the furthest, but they were the farthest away from God in their hearts. Were some of their laws God-given in the Old Testament? They sure were. And they were to prepare them and point them to way. They were there to diagnose their true condition as sinners. But they could never motivate true transformation. So how is this wrong? How is trying to live a self-righteous life wrong? I want to give you six things. Number one, it minimizes God and the work of His Spirit in your life. Through a self-righteous approach, we seek to manufacture immediate goodness by our appearance rather than allowing God to produce genuine goodness over time. I think sometimes we're just afraid to let the Spirit move in someone's life. We feel like we've got to be the Holy Spirit. And so the danger is, is we step in and create this self-righteousness culture where it's all about working on the externals. Are the externals going to be there if you're in love with Jesus? Of course they are. But Jesus is confronting in Ephesus the most important thing that was being missed. And that was their passion for God. That was their thirst for Him. That was, that was loving Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what they loved? They loved their goodness. They loved their good works. Their idol was themselves. They were, they were captivated with what all that they were doing for God. But their heart's devotion wasn't Jesus. And so when, when we're self-righteous, we're minimizing the work of God and His Spirit in our life. Number two, we're minimizing His grace. 
What happens is is self-righteousness places self-effort and discipline ahead of the spiritual and organic growth of grace that is sometimes, uh, yeah, it's out, sometimes it's not controlled by us, and it's not controlled by us, it's controlled by the Spirit. It turns spiritually into something that could be manufactured and manipulated rather than cultivated and grown. Sometimes it seems like in the church we're all concerned with manufacturing spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is not an assembly line. Spiritual growth is a greenhouse where you're going to have trees that are young, trees that are older, and well-mature trees that are bearing fruit. So self-righteousness minimizes grace. It also places our evaluation ahead of God's. We become such great measurers of our own righteousness, and we're very forgiving of ourselves. But we are very strict and strident on other people who are not measuring up. And so it places our measurements and evaluation ahead of God's. Number four, it's externally focused. The Pharisees focused on behavior over heart. When we're solely focusing on externals, there is still pride, fear, anxiety, doubt, and distrust in our hearts. Our rules and standards serve to, yes, whitewash the outside, and we compare well against others, but the inside is still a mess. And that's what Jesus said over and over to the most holy people who seem to be holy in their culture. This self-righteous spirit fosters compartmentalization and rationalization. The Pharisees rationalized their internal sins because they were externally good. So they put up with their own internal sins of hatred towards other classes of people. They put up with other sins such as hatred in their heart towards Jesus. They compartmentalized their spirituality. You see, it's easy to tolerate our besetting sins so long as we compensate with external successes that we can measure against others. We see this in Christianity all around us. I mean, how many of you have heard of a, of a well-known national Christian leader who all of a sudden you find out he was living a double life, fell into some terrible sin that harmed himself, his family, and the body of Christ deeply? It's going to take decades to, to heal. Why? Because he compartmentalized. He rationalized. Because it was all about the externals. Pastor Shetler told a story this week about a guy who preached probably one of the most powerful messages on the campus of the campus church. I was not a student at that time. Wish I could have been to just see it. But he says it was literally like a great awakening happening on the campus. Students were getting saved. People were surrendering their lives to preach. And he said, you know, that was one of the most amazing sermons he had ever heard on the campus. And if you know Pastor Shetler, he's a pretty good speaker. When he says that's an amazing sermon, you're like, wow, that, that must have made a big difference. You know, I would have liked to hear that. But a year and a half later, this guy was found out that as he was traveling around city to city, he was having illicit relationships with people who weren't his wife. Externals, all good. But a heart that was clearly not in love with Jesus. And so this self-righteousness, when we slip into it, we think, okay, it's about cleaning up the outside. Well, will your outside get cleaned up? Sure it will, but it starts on the inside. And and, and what happens is is this self-righteousness removes the Holy Spirit's work in holy living. We forget that he's the Holy Spirit. His process, his work is to produce holiness. And so self-generated holiness isn't holy. It might appear holy. The Pharisees looked holy, but God is interested in generating true life transformation by his power. So how can you tell if you have a self-righteous life? I want to give you four things. These aren't in your notes. I would really encourage you to write these down. These are warning signs that you are slipping into, you and I are slipping into self-righteousness in our life. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, a critical spirit. A critical spirit towards other Christians who are different than you. Always looking for the gotcha moment to pounce on someone and level your case at them. A critical spirit. If you study the Pharisees and the Gospels, that's exactly them. They were self-righteous, and boy, you can see it because they were critical. They couldn't be happy. Catch this. They couldn't be happy over a blind man receiving sight. They had to get into into the nitty-gritty of the law and find out and try to find a way to accuse Jesus. And sadly, they catch this. They casted out a blind man and his family from the synagogue because he was healed. How critical do you have to be when you see someone's life transformed and you kick them out of the church? That's what they did. A critical spirit. Number two, another way you can tell that you have a self-righteous attitude is a superiority complex. 
A, a, a belief that you have a better audience with the Father because you're his favorite because of how you live. A superiority complex that God has a special seat for you. Hey, good news is the gospel gives us all a seat at his table. And here's the, here's the beautiful, beautiful thing. We're all his children. I, I don't know. Where, where, where's the ranking system going to be? Who, who, who's going to have the bigger crowns? I don't know about all that. All I know is is a self-righteous attitude creates a superiority complex that makes me think, ooh, God hears my prayers better than he does the brand new Christian who just got saved last week. That's the Pharisees. They thought they, thought they had the access. They had Moses' seat to sit in. They thought they were the special gift to the world superiority complex. This is how we tell if we have a self-righteous attitude. Number three, a competitive heart. A competitive heart, a critical spirit, a superiority complex, a competitive heart, always striving to be better than someone else in the church and making sure that you are recognized for your progress and you are upset when they get recognized for their progress. It's funny. You see this in churches over the years. And, and even as, as, as I've traveled, you see this. People who are competitive. Hey, you know what? There's a problem when you think that there's a competition here on stage. There's no competition. There's no competition for who gets to serve where. There's no favoritism, although that's, I'm sure that's, again, that gets criticized, favoritism. No, it's all about serving Jesus and seeing more and better disciples made of him through the power of his saving and transforming grace. Amen? There's no competition here. But, but yet, self-righteousness creates a, com- a, a, a competitive environment because what are you doing? You're always comparing externals. Well, I'm doing this better than them. This is how we tell if we have a self-righteous spirit and attitude. A competitive heart, superiority complex, a critical spirit, and number four, a gossiping tongue. Self-righteousness loves, it thrives in the environment of gossip. One that seeks to elevate oneself. What is gossip? It's when you're seeking to elevate yourself in the audience of others by discussing the disagreements or downfalls of others with other people who who are not even a part of that struggle or that issue. Heard an interesting story about the town gossip. Uh, It's from a a news article here. Many years ago, the Moody Church News carried a humorous story about a woman in a small town who was known for being a gossip. And I'm not saying that it's just women. Guys can be guilty of this too. But this was a lady, and, and one day on vacation, she visited the offices of the Chicago Daily News She was wearing a white dress, and inadvertently, she leaned against a wall where a freshly printed copy of the front page was hanging. She didn't realize that. There was a piece of the newspaper hanging there. It was a hot, humid day, and some of the print actually came off on the back of her white dress. Later, as she was walking down the street there in Chicago to meet her husband, she noticed that the people walking behind her were snickering. People were snickering behind her back, whispering behind her back. When she reached the place where her husband was waiting, she asked him if there was anything on her back that shouldn't be there. Now catch this. As she turned around, he read the large black reversed letters, Daily News. Realizing the appropriateness of the words, the husband said, No, dear, there's nothing on your back that doesn't belong there. Meaning she was the one who was loving to go around town giving the Daily News about everybody. The Pharisees, they were guilty of this. They were guilty of bickering, murmuring, complaining, just like the nation of Israel was in the Old Testament in the wilderness. These are four signs. I'm sure there's others, but these are the ones that as I thought through the life of the Pharisees and the study of that, a critical spirit, a superiority complex, a competitive heart, and a gossiping tongue. Guys, brothers and sisters, if these things, if if one of these things is there, these are signs that we're just like Ephesus. We're focused on the externals. We're taking pride in the externals. But yet Jesus rebukes those who think they're the best and says, you've missed it. You're missing the whole point. And so that brings us then to this thought, and that's Christ-likeness. What is holiness? Well, we know it's not self-righteous living. We know it's not just externals, although we, we know externals will be there and, and, and a righteous life and living will be there. Of course it will be. But it's Christ-likeness. You see... Jesus never sinned. He was holy. So he never sinned in that aspect. He was holy. But you know what? He wasn't like the Pharisees. He loved people. 
He loved people who had nothing to offer them. Man, I was reminded about that this week. Isn't it amazing when you really start to examine your love for others and you start realizing, wow, a lot of times I love people because of what they can do for me. Think about it. Who could do what for Jesus? He's the creator of the universe. But he loved the people. He never was looking past them, thinking about the next conversation. And man, oh, I thought about that this week. So many times, people can get so, you can get so busy that you forget that people are your mission. And that's what it's all about. Christ-likeness. You see, here, here in this passage in Revelation 2 and also in 1 Peter 1 that we just looked at, where he's talking about obedient children and living out a holy life, God calls us to holiness on every level. He calls us to grow in obedience, and that is behavior. He calls us to be transformed from our former lust there in 1 Peter. He says, you know, do not uh, be transformed from, the, from, from your former lust in your ignorance. That's also behavior. He also talks about conversation in that passage. Again, that's behavioral. And so he says he calls us to be holy. But holiness ultimately is simply another way of saying Christ-likeness. And what do I mean? When you get saved... You are regenerated with what we call an internal holiness. The moment you get saved, there's a part of you that's made holy, completely holy. It's the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. Think about it. The Holy Spirit cannot dwell where there's sin. And in your spirit, the Holy Spirit fully resides there. That's why your old nature died at the cross. And so you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so you have been made holy in your nature, in your spirit, you now have the Holy Spirit, and this is what we call the internal holiness. You were declared holy by God through the blood of Jesus the moment you placed your faith in him as your Savior, and you were saved from sin's penalty. That's good news. But number two, God then begins to take that internal holiness, and he begins to blossom it into external holiness the rest of your life. And what he does is daily he renews and transforms your mind and your behavior so that every day you're growing in grace, you're growing in your conversation, your lifestyle, that it might be holy, even as your new, rate, new nature already is holy. Do you catch that in First Peter? Be holy for I am holy. Well, guess who lives inside of you? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what Paul is saying is, hey, You've been made internally holy in your spirit. And now the rest of your life, you are blooming into external holiness. And then ultimately, so internal holiness, external holiness, eternal holiness. You will one day be redeemed, freed from this old flesh to live forever in heaven. Eternal holiness. That's what our, oh, that's what our spirit groans for, doesn't it? That's what Roman 8 alludes to. It says that our spirit groans within us, waiting for the redemption, that eternal holiness that we long for. Because there's a part of us that hates sin now. There's a part of us that loves God. And so Jesus here really drills down with the church of Ephesus and says, hey, you've got the externals right, but you've missed the internal. You've missed what I'm doing in you. Because when you really focus on what I'm doing in you, then all these things that you're doing for me will have meaning. Again, I liken this to a marriage. For some in here, this, this message practically applies to our married life because we might be like Ephesus in our married life. We've got all these works, we're laboring hard in our marriage, but the love was lost a long time ago, and you know it. Because, yeah, you're going through all the motions of a marriage, but you're miserable. You know why? Because you haven't, you've forgotten your first love. What some of us need to do is pull out that old shoebox of love letters that we wrote to our spouse when we were dating or they wrote to us when we were dating and read those. Have you ever done that, married couples? Have you ever found some old love letters? I saw some couples glancing at each other just now. I won't call them out. Have you ever read some of those? You're like, wow, who was that person? Now part of it is, is love, infatuation can be blind in our dating courtship time. But I liken that to the Christian life. There was something so real, so powerful about our relationship with Jesus in those early days. 
Where did that go, brothers and sisters? Where is that? The only way I know to get back to first love is to pull out his love letter and start reading. For it's in his love letter that he tells us how much he loves us. As I told you this week, we went to camp and had a wonderful time. I hear a bee buzzing. Anybody see a bug on me? Anyway, that is always, I hate bugs. I do not love bugs. I will kill every bug I see. I'm praying that in the millennium, there's no bees, no wasps, no bugs. Anyway, um, it was uh, Joey's fourth year at junior boot camp. He was excited about that. He and Luke roomed together in the cabin, and it was Luke's first year. And you can see them having a good time there. Well, Luke evidently was having such a good time that he didn't realize that he had gotten a splinter in his left heel. Left heel? Right heel. He got a splinter in his right heel, and this was no small splinter. In fact, it was there for two or three days, and <laughs> Mom and I asked him, Luke, uh, didn't you know you had a splinter in your heel for two or three days? <laughs> and catch this, he's like, no, I was too busy thinking about other stuff. I didn't realize it. I mean... How do you not know that? Because it was really painful, wasn't it, Lukey? Mom, last night, had to go to surgery on his heel and because there was infection starting around it, and clearly we needed to get that splinter out of his foot. But can you imagine? I mean, he's had a splinter in there for two or three days. Is that splinter going to be at the surface where you can get at it? No. So mom gets the tweezers and digs for several minutes, and I hear Luke in there in agonizing pain, bawling his eyes out, poor guy, and I asked him if I could share this illustration. I, by the way, I've learned now to ask my kids for permission on any sermon illustrations for the future. So he, he, he approved this. Anyway, he was in there bawling his eyes out. And of course, immediately, my heart as a father ran in there and embraced him. and said, Lukey, the pain's not going to be forever. I love you. I'm right here. And, and I told him, I said, squeeze me when it gets painful. And I'm like, <gasps> you know, I could hardly breathe. He was squeezing me so hard it was painful. And mom, and here's the bad news, mom couldn't get it with the tweezers. How many of y'all know what happens if you can't get it with the tweezers? Get your needle. And so then more tears, more pain. Oh, you know, we tried to put some ice on it to numb it first. I don't think that worked too well. And again, I just embraced him and said, Luke, I love you, buddy. Luke, it's not going to be forever. This pain might be temporary, but this is going to avoid a lot more pain down the road. And so just talking to him, just embracing him. He was, I mean, tears had stained my shirt by then, and he was in a lot of pain. Why did I run to him and embrace him in that moment? Because I love him. Thankfully, mom got the splinter out after a little bit more surgery with the needle, and we think his foot's all good. This morning as I was getting ready for church, I was asking the Lord, Lord, I need an illustration to really communicate what I think you're talking about here with first love. And what did I say? How do we remember and repent? How do we get back to first love? We, we open his love letter. And well, here's what we find. Here's what we find, brothers and sisters. I'm an okay father. I fail a lot of times, my children and my family. But here's one thing I know. When I see my son in pain, I run to him and I embrace him and I let him cry into my shirt and I tell him it's not going to be for long, buddy. This is for your good. I can't imagine the heavenly father sitting there in heaven watching his son go through the agony that he did and wanting to come and embrace him on the cross. But in his holiness, God, God has to judge sin. And so for the first time in Jesus' life, he did not refer to God as his father, but as my God, my God. Jesus suffered and bled and died and went through intense physical, spiritual, and emotional agony on the cross alone without the embrace of his father. His father wasn't there to say, hold on, my son, just a little longer. This, this pain isn't forever. No, God was silent. The father was silent, and the son was hanging there, going through the agony 
for you and for me. That's love. That's love that I'm still trying to understand and fully fathom. I mean, Jesus crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, Jesus is telling the church of Ephesus here, your externals look good. You've got a lot of things that are going great. But where is your passion? Where is your love for me? You're missing it. You're going through the motions of biblical Christianity, but you're missing the actual motivation, the actual power and the strength and the, and the purpose of it. It's a relationship. And so we grow in love as we go back and we see his immense, measureless love for us. And that kind of love, folks, is the kind of love where you immediately are like, yes, Lord, I'll follow you wherever, whenever, however, whoever. My life, Lord, is yours to control because you love me so much that you would allow your son to go through what he did on the cross without your embrace so that I could be embraced by you forever, never to fear forsakenness, never to fear you leaving me. You see, the son of God was forsaken in those moments on the cross so that you and I would never have to experience that in Christ. Let's pray.